Hamas releases more hostages after a last-minute snag in its deal with Israel. Today's delay shows just how fragile the temporary ceasefire is. We'll hear the latest on the exchange and the pause in fighting. For Saturday, November 25th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Black Friday has come a long way since the in-store stampedes and fights, with online retail becoming more and more convenient. But the spending holiday can still tell us a lot about the health and habits of our economy. People love Black Friday because they know it's the biggest breadth of discounts. And from Black Friday to the man in black, we hear from Johnny Cash's son about his legacy as a songwriter. When you remove the music and you remove the singular voice, he conveyed such power just through his words. All that plus tips on working through those leftovers. First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Hamas released a second round of hostages tonight. Israel's military says that 13 Israelis and four people from Thailand have been handed over to the Red Cross and are heading to Israel. This after Qatar and Egypt stepped in to resolve a dispute today that delayed this round of hostage releases. The families of the hostages are being updated by Israeli military officials. President Biden says he hopes the Americans taken hostage will be released soon. And Israel is releasing another 39 Palestinians held in its jails. The four-day ceasefire went into effect yesterday when 24 hostages released. Itai Raviv told NPR his nine-year-old cousin, his cousin's mother and grandmother were among those released Friday. Uh, They're doing okay, Uh, not the best. Uh, They seem fine physically. Uh, Mentally, uh, they're still in shock. Uh, It's been uh, quite a nightmare for, for us and obviously for them. His grandfather was also taken hostage and hasn't been released. Officials in Ukraine say electricity has been restored in the capital after a massive drone attack by Russia. NPR's Nathan Rott reports the Ukrainian Air Force says more than 70 drones were aimed at Kyiv. Ukrainian authorities are calling it the largest drone attack on Kyiv since the start of Russia's full-scale invasion nearly two years ago. Air alarms blared in the city in the pre-dawn light as air defense systems lit up the sky. Ukrainian officials say most of the drones were shot down, the debris damaging residential buildings, but some electrical infrastructure was damaged, causing power outages for parts of Kyiv. Ukrainian energy experts have been warning that Russia has been stockpiling long-range missiles and drones for the coming winter and that large-scale attacks on energy infrastructure will increase as temperatures continue to drop. Nathan Rott, NPR News. Election officials in the U.S. are underpaid and facing increased workloads in recent years. That's according to a new survey that's out this week. NPR's Miles Parks reports many officials report fearing for their own safety ahead of next year's presidential election. The survey of local voting officials, done annually by Reed College's Elections and Voting Information Center, found that running elections in the U.S. just keeps getting harder. It's something experts have warned about since 2016, the new responsibilities like understanding cybersecurity risks and misinformation would take a toll. More than half of the voting jurisdictions in the U.S. have one or no full-time employees for voting, and those people are under increased stress. A third report knowing someone who has left the field because of fear for their safety. But there's good news, too. Most election officials really like their jobs. Four out of five say they're satisfied in their positions. Miles Parks, NPR News, Washington. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. Today is Small Business Saturday, and businesses across Massachusetts are offering deals to draw in shoppers. Bill Rennie is the vice president of the Massachusetts Retailers Association. He says the day is a good way of reminding people to support the local economy. But we don't want to do that just one day a year. We want to do it 365 days a year. We want you to shop here, there, and everywhere all across the Commonwealth. Rennie says local businesses could really use the boost. Data from the association's latest survey predict retailers in the state will see just a 1% increase in sales compared to last holiday season. That's well below national figures, which predict a 3 to 4% increase. A New England ice cream brand is pulling its products off the shelves after listeria was found in a batch of ice cream. That's according to a report from Wilcox Ice Cream filed with the Food and Drug Administration. Anyone with Wilcox or Leonardo's brand treats with Best Buy dates of September through November 2024 should throw them away. Listeria can cause fatal infections in young children and the elderly. President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden are on Nantucket for another night. They encountered both cheers and jeers as they dined out on the island yesterday. A large group cheered on the Bidens, but another group shouted at the president and held banners calling for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. Biden said yesterday that his goal is to have more hostages released by Hamas during the temporary ceasefire. Visiting Nantucket for Thanksgiving is a decades-long tradition for the Biden family. They return to the White House tomorrow. The city of Lowell is hosting its annual holiday parade and lighting event today. Events kicked off at noon and will run until about 9 o'clock tonight. They include a magic show, hot chocolate competition, and live music. The tree lighting at City Hall takes place at 5.30. Should be a dry night ahead for that tree lighting. Partly cloudy, lows in the upper 20s tomorrow. A blend of sun and clouds, highs in the mid-40s. Clouds roll in tomorrow night and rain likely for Monday. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. After a delay of several hours, Hamas has now released a second group of Israeli women and children held hostage for seven weeks. And in turn, Israel is set to release a second group of Palestinian prisoners. The last-minute snag reflected the fragile nature of the temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. For more, we're joined by NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv. Hey, Greg. Hey, Scott. So an agreement had been in place. Yesterday, the first exchange of hostages and prisoners seemed to go pretty smoothly, yet today's was delayed until late in the night. What exactly happened? Right. Uh, you know, as you said, we got through the, the exchange on, uh, on, on Friday, and, and so it, it was a good sign and thought uh, things could, could go well today. The release of the Israeli hostages was supposed to happen around 4 p.m. local time, but it was delayed, and then it emerged that Hamas was complaining that not enough aid was reaching northern Gaza, which uh, it says was part of this agreement. Uh, Hamas raised a, few, raised a few other grievances as well, saying some of the prisoners that wanted to be released were not on Israel's list of those being freed. Uh, but Qatar, who, which has been the main mediator here, mm-hmm. stepped in and helped resolve these issues. Uh, Egypt and the U.S. Uh, also seem to be involved. Are the Israeli hostages out of Gaza now? 
Yes, the International Committee of the Red Cross drove the Israelis, and we're talking about eight children and five women, out of southern Gaza into Egypt. They've recently reached Israel, and they'll get a quick medical exam in southern Israel and then be taken to hospitals in the Tel Aviv area for more extensive exams. Also, several foreign nationals were supposed to be uh, released. They're believed to be from Thailand, though we don't uh, have official word yet. Mm -hmm. A small number of Americans are still being held. Uh, they have dual U.S.-Israeli citizenship. Uh, they have not been released. Okay. What, what about the status of the Palestinian prisoners? So Israel is set to release another 39 Palestinian women and teenagers uh, who are being held prisoner in the West Bank. Uh, Palestinian families are there waiting past midnight for their arrival. Uh, the, the list calls for 33 teenagers and six women to be freed. Um, these releases would keep the ceasefire agreement on track for a second day. Uh, and this temporary truce is set to run through Monday. And overall, it calls for about 50 Israelis and 150 Palestinians to be released. Okay, well, let's go back to what you said. One of the tension points was, though, Hamas saying that not enough aid was getting to northern Gaza. What's the update on the aid going in since it was such a sticking point today? Right, Scott. So the, the ceasefire agreement is allowing increased aid to flow into Gaza. So about 400 trucks have come in uh, southern Gaza over the past two days. This is far more than at any time during the past seven weeks of fighting. It includes food, water, medicine, and fuel. But Hamas says not enough is going to northern Gaza. This is where the Israeli troops have taken over much of the territory. Uh, based on the statements from Hamas and Israel, at least 50 of these 400 trucks have gone to the northern part of the territory. But Hamas says this is not enough. There should be more. Uh, we don't know the exact details. But as you, as you noted, this was a big sticking point today. We'll be watching to see if that gets uh, cleared up in the, the days ahead. Yeah, so, so a lot of complications in day two of the ceasefire. But in the end, the agreement seems to be holding. What does this bode for the coming days? Yeah, I think it's going to be touch and go throughout. Obviously, a lot of things can go wrong, but we saw today other countries, Qatar, Egypt, the U.S., are standing by to, to help sort out any glitches. If the ceasefire holds through Monday, it can be extended a day at a time for six more days. But Israel says the ceasefire will not extend for more than 10 days, and it will resume military operations uh, intended to, to crush Hamas. Israel's military chief made that very clear in remarks tonight. That's NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv. Thanks so much, Greg. Sure thing, Scott. Okay, so we have polished off our Thanksgiving dinner and put the leftovers in the fridge, and that means the holiday shopping season is officially here for real. Get Black Friday deals now at Target. Thousands of Black Friday deals are coming to Best Buy. 12 a.m. sell hours till morning. Been online since yesterday. Breath smells bad. I need coffee. Five hundred early bird specials. Not today. It's Black Friday, Black Friday. Gotta go to clothes on Black Friday. Whether or not you miss the alleged good old days of lining up at the crack of dawn to get that Tickle Me Elmo or 50-inch smart screen TV or whatever, or nowadays you play it safe and do your shopping from the comfort of your own home, it is the time of year when many Americans are on the lookout for deals on holiday gifts and stuff for themselves. Let's be real about that. 
But that's only if they feel like they have the extra money to spend. You know, people love Black Friday because they know it's the biggest breadth of discounts. Katie Thomas is with the Kearney Consumer Institute and studies consumer buying habits. What we've seen really in the last year or so is very much like a where now, buy now mentality, which means that because people are tight on money, they actually tend to wait until they feel like they really need something. The arrival of Black Friday and holiday sales provide the perfect excuse for many people to buy what they've been eyeing all year long as we ramp up to December. Consumer spending is a huge part of the economy, and it sends a strong signal about how Americans feel about the financial health of the country. And how they feel about that really matters, because the amount consumers spend during the holiday season could make or break some retailers. To talk about all of this, we called up NPR business correspondent Alina Selyuk to find out what Black Friday shopping says about where the economy has been, where it might be headed, and what the biggest difference is in consumer moods and consumer optimism now compared to a year ago. There are some big changes, uh, some things for the better, some things for the worse. And in the good news, the economic context has changed in these ways. Unemployment last year was 3.5 percent. Now it's 3.9 percent. We're still sort of at record lows. That's really good news. Mm -hmm. Um, Inflation back last year was 7 percent. Now it's 3.2 percent. So that's cooled dramatically. Gas is a lot cheaper. Um, A trip to the grocery store no longer feels like you just set your wallet on fire by buying buying like lettuce and some eggs. In bad news, people are repaying student loans again. That's Mm -hmm. restarted. We are draining savings accounts and we're charging a lot to credit cards. Our collective debt as a nation has topped a record $1 trillion and more people are falling behind on bills. Wow. Just to put some numbers on those vibes (laughs) that we're in right now. But those are some good vibes. And those are some bad vibes. And some meh vibes. So (laughs) what does all that mean? Any sense at this point what that means for the holiday season? Yeah, the big question all year for retailers was whether people were going to start scaling back. For months, we've been hearing about people really prioritizing food and necessities over, like, fun stuff. But then you get these other data points about people going out to restaurants and bars. More than 8% more this year than last year. And we went out a lot last year, so the bar is pretty high. And now surveys suggest more people than ever plan to shop this holiday weekend. The National Retail Federation says people are planning to spend about the same amount as last year on decorations, candy and snacks. And actually more on gifts. People are saying they plan to spend more on gifts this year than last year by an average of about $34. An average holiday budget, according to the NRF, is $875, slightly more than last year. And it's almost the same as it was in 2021, which, if you recall, was a totally crazy year for shopping. Yeah. I guess I'm surprised that it seems like all of these forecasts are so dramatically in the positive, in Mm. the big, in the more direction. Mm -hmm. It is a bit of a peculiar year in that way. And I guess we'll see if that is how things play out. Um, There is something to be said about the fact that the categories that have particularly struggled this year, sporting goods, electronics and clothes specifically, are kind of those things that people buy Mm -hmm. for the holidays. And so... Overall, holiday spending is expected to grow, like I said, about 3 to 4%, um, which is kind of in line with what we've seen over the past decade. It's much slower growth than we saw at the peak of the pandemic, but growth nonetheless. 
it's interesting, right? We kind of cheer more spending here. You know, if you're a store, you certainly want to see people spending more. More spending is good for the economy. But at the same time, you just talked about the fact that people are dealing with student loan debt for the first time in years and that credit card debt is at an all time high. Yes. How are people thinking about that, if at all, as they as they approach the holiday season? A lot of the economists will say that it's important to remember that more people are getting higher wages right mm -hmm. now. So overall, as a country, we are getting higher pay. And also on the credit card bills, I did ask this question uh, of Katie Thomas. Um, she runs the Carney Consumer Institute. It's like a think tank inside the consulting firm Carney. And this is what she had to say. Traditionally, what we find and what we're still hearing this year is people like to spend on the holidays. Once again, they like to buy good gifts and they like to buy for themselves because they know it's the best price of the year. It's just a time of the year people are in spending mode. And while we have had a lot of like challenging news around the wallet, we've seen, of course, inflation start to stabilize a bit and people are employed and wages are good. So what I think the biggest risk is consumer credit card debt going up, credit card delinquencies going up. But that's, I think, going to be a new year problem, right? I think people are going to spend through the holiday season and then they're going to have to, you know, figure that out in, in 2024. So it's the good all shop now, face the consequence later season. Mm -hmm. Like me personally, I'm off to buy some new jeans and that credit card bill is the future Alina problem. <laughs> well, <laughs> present 2023, Alina Salyuk, I appreciate you coming in to talk about all of this. Thanks for having me. And good luck to future you. <laughs> Indeed. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining us on this holiday weekend. I'm Josie Guarino. It's 518 coming up at 6 on 90.9 WBUR. The smell and taste of home, a whirlwind romance, and finding comfort in the most dire circumstances. Stay with us for stories of things past shaping the here and now on the Moth Radio Hour on 90.9 WBUR. The news from Israel continues to change quickly. Stay with 90.9 WBUR for the politics, the personal stories, and the history you need to understand this moment. Keep listening, and thanks. The Bruins lost to the Rangers this afternoon, 7-4. The Celtics had the day off. Partly cloudy tonight, upper 20s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs, cambridgeculinary.com or on their app. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The Israeli military says Hamas has freed 13 Israelis and four people from Thailand in a second round of hostage releases under a four-day ceasefire deal. They're now in Israel. Israel is also freeing another 39 Palestinians held prisoner in its jails in the occupied West Bank. President Biden says he hopes Americans are among the next releases. And Russia's war in Ukraine continues. Officials say electricity has been restored in Kyiv after a massive drone 
drone attack by Moscow of more than 70 drones. And Pope Francis canceled his audiences because of a bout with the flu. The Vatican says hospital tests show the 87-year-old pontiff doesn't have a respiratory illness. He is due to travel to Dubai next week for the Conference on Climate Change. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. This is a persecution. Felony violations. We need one more indictment. Criminal conspiracy. To close out this election. Innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. It's time for Trump's Trials, our weekly take on the latest developments in the multiple cases former President Donald Trump is facing all while he runs for president again. This week, we are talking gag orders, and we're also going to get into Trump's fight to stay on the ballot in several states, including Colorado. We'll also have some updates on the January 6th trial in D.C., as well as the New York civil fraud trial, where, spoiler alert, a witness ended up in tears this past week. A lot to discuss here, and as always, I am joined by my colleague, senior political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro. Hey, Domenico. Hey there, Scott. And joining us this week is Carrie Johnson, NPR's national justice correspondent. Thanks for being here, Carrie. Hi there. Let's start outside the courtroom, though, and Domenico, I think it's an understatement to say that pointing out and railing against enemies is central to Trump's political identity, right? (laughs) as is framing himself as a victim of legal witch hunts. I mean, these are both things he's been doing for years. I mean, grievance has been the thing that has fueled his political rise. I mean, that's just what he's done over and over again. Anything that's come against him uh, on the legal standpoint, investigations, impeachments, indictments, it hasn't mattered. He's called them witch hunts, and he's played the victim card. Yeah, the Mueller investigation was a witch hunt. Impeachment one was a witch hunt. Impeachment two was a witch hunt, all of these charges. But Kerry... How has this general approach gone over in the courtroom environments that Trump finds himself in now? Well, one of the big struggles that judges have had with Donald Trump is that, um, you know, even though he's been indicted in four different jurisdictions, he doesn't behave like any other criminal defendant out there. He has an enormous platform. He's been blasting the prosecutors, the judges, the clerks, the witnesses, potential witnesses against him. And it's it's really tying courts up in knots and prosecutors, too. They say that they're worried about the rise in threats against people who may be testifying, as well as a rise in threats against um, the judicial system and the integrity of these trials that are coming up. There's a couple of different gag orders in the works at the moment, and they're increasingly interrelated. So, Carrie, let's start with the New York civil trial, because Trump has already been fined several times there by the judge. He's been called to the witness stand at one point to explain why he kept attacking a court clerk And in recent days, Carrie, we've learned a lot about the magnitude of the threats that this court clerk has received because of these attacks. 
Absolutely. There's a new court filing this week that suggests that the judge in the civil fraud case in New York and his professional law clerk have received hundreds of threatening and harassing voicemails. In fact, a a court security officer submitted some evidence into the record, and it was 275 pages, single space pages of threats. These are harassment, death threats, anti-Semitic remarks about the judge and the clerk, pretty ugly stuff. And uh, the authorities in New York say this is a basis for keeping that gag order in place on Donald Trump. Trump has, of course, already paid something like $15,000 for violating the gag, but it's been lifted while Trump appeals through the court system there. I mean, 275 pages, single-spaced of these kinds of threats. They said that she gets you know, something like 30 to 50 calls a day with voicemails and, as you noted, anti-Semitic tropes. I mean, these are really real-world consequences, and there's plenty of judges and clerks and anybody who has been a political opponent or perceived opponent of Trump's that he's made them out to be has gotten this kind of treatment over and over again. And it really, you know, it's not just something that is just sort of twisted up in the courts or something that's just political speech. This is something that really does have real-world consequences. The gag order in the New York civil case, on again, off again, um, at the moment, off again, pending appeal. What's going on with the federal case? What is the argument the prosecution has made pushing for one? What is the status of that request? Sure. This past week, uh, the prosecution for the special counsel um, asserted to the federal appeals court in Washington, D.C. that there needed to be a gag. He strongly defended this gag order in the D.C. election interference case because he said there's this dynamic or this pattern of Trump going after his political opponents, witnesses, people prosecuting him, and then Trump's most vocal supporters uh, taking those words and then levying death threats against people. In fact, he pointed out that the judge in D.C. has been the subject of a death threat and a woman in Texas is being prosecuted for that. He talked about the election worker in Fulton County, Georgia, Ruby Freeman, and how she was afraid to leave her house after Trump leveled false accusations against her. And then, of course, the special counsel, Jack Smith himself, has been the subject of death threats. So this appeals court is now mulling over what to do about it, in part because criminal defendants like Donald Trump do have First Amendment rights. The challenge here is that Trump's uh, political campaign and political messaging, just like Domenico said, is really intertwined with his criminal defense in all these cases. And judges are very wary of going too far and drawing that line. Yeah. Yeah. And Domenico, meanwhile, it's clear he's going to continue pressing it and pressing it and pressing it and trying to see as far as he could take the attacks. Oh, no question about it. I mean, that's what he does, right? And he's going to test enforcement. He's going to see, you know, $15,000, you know, to Trump. Sure, for most of us, we're like fifteen grand. Okay, I'll stop talking. But for him, he's like, you know what? It's return on investment, right? It's a campaign tactic. He'll go and raise some more money and kind of use it as as a, another sign of, of him being a political victim. And he's going to push the envelope over and over again. But like we said, real world consequences for sure, as we've seen people over and over again continue to talk about how this is part of his political strategy. Yeah. The challenge that these courts are having with Donald Trump, he, he's careful, somewhat careful, even though it's bombastic and inflammatory in his phrasing. So he doesn't direct his followers to go out and do something. He just offers a suggestion. And if any other criminal defendant, somebody awaiting trial on drug charges, for instance, were to go after a potential witnesses in this fashion, the courts would very likely not just find these people, but haul them into court and 
uh, threaten them with jail time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you really going to do that with Donald Trump, who's the leading candidate for the GOP nomination? This is the pickle. Does Donald Trump get treated like everybody else in the justice system or not? And that's what these courts need to grapple with. All right, let's shift gears here and quickly check in on that civil fraud case in New York. We, we saw high drama there this past week when a longtime accountant for the Trump organization, Jeffrey McConney, broke down in tears on the witness stand. He was testifying about the value of the Trump organization assets, which, of course, is the heart of that trial. And the judges already ruled that those values were fraudulently inflated. Carrie, any takeaways from that testimony? You know, this is a guy who worked for the company for 35 years and said he was proud to work there. But he also broke down in tears when he talked about all the legal strain he was under and said he basically left the company unwillingly because he was just tired of all these legal problems and challenges. He also testified, importantly, that Trump himself reviewed financial statements, the same financial statements at issue in this case. So that's an important point for the prosecution. But he also said that he he felt like like a lot of the financial decisions the company made were justified. Um, it's worth noting that he received a lot of money in severance when he left the company, too. One other place to check in on. Colorado is not one of the places where the main trials we're tracking is taking place. But there is another interesting legal challenge to Trump playing out there that we want to talk about this week. In several states now, people have filed challenges trying to keep Trump off of next year's ballot And their argument is that his actions leading up to and on January 6th should make him ineligible for office due to the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Domenico, help us out with a quick refresher of what the 14th Amendment says. Yeah, the key part here is Section 3, where it says that no person shall be a senator, representative in Congress, elector of president and vice president, hold any office civil or military under the United States who engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same. Now, the question here is whether or not Trump engaged in insurrection. And certainly, you know, a lot of people, including this judge in Colorado, believed that Trump did engage in insurrection because of inspiring January 6th. But it's a really tricky legal question of whether or not he did because he hasn't been convicted of anything like that yet. And I wonder how the courts will really look at something like that. So, Kerry, the judge in the Colorado case ruled in favor of Trump keeping him on the ballot, but at the same time said he engaged in insurrection. Now the case is heading to the state Supreme Court. But but what is the logic of that ruling? Well, the judge found that Trump was not an officer of the United States. And this is going to sound complicated because, of course, the president takes the oath of office. We watch it every four years on TV. Uh, But under some readings of the law and the Constitution, the president is not considered an officer. And that's what the judge found here, even though some major league uh, legal scholars have very much been intellectual architects behind this movement um, to disqualify Trump. uh, There is a live question of whether the president is considered an officer of the U.S. And that's where this Colorado judge landed. Carrie, this is this is a question that that it seems to get to a constitutional reading. It's a question that is playing out in multiple states right now. It has quite high stakes. The the presidential election, all of those things seem to be the typical stew of ingredients that lead to something getting before the U.S. Supreme Court. Do we have a sense whether that is the case at this early point? 
It's worth noting that this week Trump took credit for victories, not just in Colorado, but also in Michigan and Minnesota and New Hampshire on this exact issue. So uh, he he has been winning in a lot of states on this question. The open question for you and for all of us is whether the Supreme Court is, is going to get to this before next November. It may well get there uh in some form or fashion. But this is a question that's really uncomfortable. Secretaries of state, even ones who are on the record not really favoring or liking Donald Trump, don't want to disqualify him from the ballot. And I don't know that the Supreme Court is going to want to weigh in in that direction either. Generally speaking, this court decides a lot of things are political questions, that they're better left for the political sphere and not the legal sphere. And this seems to be like a, you know, a poster child for that question. All right, so last question to both of you. Of all the stuff we talked about, of all the stuff going on, what's one thing from this past week that you think is going to be a key thing to think about going forward with all of these trials? Domenico? I just keep coming back to the reality of a lot of these threats. You know, this isn't just kind of make-believe stuff. And I just think that, you know, these are real people's lives who are facing, you know, th- these difficult moments. And when I think politically, there's so many elections officials who've been attacked as well. And all of that institutional knowledge that winds up being decreased. Is this something that Trump is going to try to do, you know, as he moves forward, if he were to win the presidency to sort of install, you know, loyalists and people who show fealty to him, who won't push back, who won't stand up for institutions when they think that there's something that the president did that wasn't correct or was outside the law or wasn't within the bounds of what's normal. Um, I think it's a real big open question for just how far Trump is going to push the limits. Carrie, what about you? You know, one thing I've been hearing from uh, this Justice Department, this attorney general for really a couple of years now is this idea that no one is above the law. And the Justice Department feels strongly in that direction. But the courts, when it comes to practice, are having a really hard time with Donald J. Trump. And where this court in D.C. winds up in terms of how much um, weight it gives Trump's First Amendment rights versus uh, the way it would treat any other criminal defendant who's going to trial in the next six months. These are going to be important issues, not just for this case, but they could help uh, create a blueprint for how courts treat other criminal defendants thousands, tens of thousands of them moving forward. You know, sometimes you hear the aphorism that bad cases make bad law. And this is really, um, this is going to be a challenge for the courts. That is NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson. Carrie, thank you so much. Happy to be here. And also Senior Political Editor and Correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Thanks, Domenico. Hey, you're welcome as always. Hope both of you enjoy the the Leftovers Parade of this weekend. (laughs) Mm, Hi. And you can hear more about those cases in our weekly podcast, Trump's Trials. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts.
This is NPR News. The holiday season is in full swing, which means a lot of quality time with family, loved ones, and with our phones. Come on, admit it, you're logging a lot of hours on that thing lately, making plans for the group chat, getting those Black Friday deals, judging people's cooking on Instagram. Hey, maybe you're listening to us on your phone right now, and if so, we appreciate it. But it is always good to take a break. So if you're struggling to put your phone down, NPR's LifeKit team can help. Here's reporter Maya Ina with some tips. I have a confession. I'm one of those people who sleeps with their phone. Like, I mean, I charge it right next to my head on my pillow. Scrolling until I pass out and starting back up first thing in the morning is draining. And when I think about it, it might explain why my mornings are so chaotic. But they could be like this. Okay, have you ever been to a hotel that's kind of nice and you get into the sheets and it just feels so nice to kind of like have this time to yourself and just feel very calm? That's Sammy Nichols. That's what I felt when I put my phone outside of my room. It's like I got that presence of mind back because it makes that time around your bedtime feel just like like a sanctuary. Nichols is the author of Log Off, Self-Help for the Extremely Online. And it's a workbook to help people begin to practice an approach called digital minimalism. Now, digital minimalism is not to be confused with a digital detox, which is when you just quit the internet cold turkey for a few weeks. And then what? Like, you go back online and you don't really have a plan to be able to figure out how to kind of strike that balance in between being completely offline and being too online. Digital minimalism is more about figuring out your own personal internet boundaries. For Nichols, cutting out the internet isn't nearly as important or useful as cutting down on using it. Finding that middle ground can help you regain your time and start to feel better mentally, physically, and emotionally. The first tip for doing this is setting basic boundaries. You can start by turning off push notifications from apps on your phone so it's not constantly pinging, and yes, charging your phone outside of your bedroom. The next tip is to figure out your scrolling habits. Do you run to Twitter when you feel lonely? Does checking Instagram make you feel insecure? When you're online, ask yourself how you feel and write down the answer so you can reflect on it. And maybe then that'll lead to why and what can I do? And most times it's not scroll. Most times it's like take a nap or talk to a friend or do something that makes you happy. And that's the third tip. Reinvest in yourself and spending time in your offline hobbies. Nichols says practicing digital minimalism means you'll probably have a lot more time on your hands. That's really how it felt, where I was like, oh my god, I can do anything I want with my time. Like, and I forgot. I forgot that I'm an adult who can do whatever I want, you know? The goal with digital minimalism isn't to figure out how to live without social media or the internet. It's to be more aware of when and how you use it. Technology should enhance your life, not distract you from it. The less that I have these pings on my brain of like news articles, tweets, and that sort of thing, the less that my brain feels like it's just constantly being activated, the more that I realize I just want to sit and relax a little bit and like just be. And that itself feels almost, I almost revolutionary. Digital minimalism, Nicole says, is a step toward living a more intentional life. For NPR News, I'm Maya Aina.
For more helpful tips from LifeKit, including a quiz, go to npr.org slash LifeKit. This is NPR News. Thanks for joining us. I'm Josie Guarino. Coming up in about 20 minutes on 90.9 WBUR, we'll hear about stories of things past and how they shape the here and now. Stay with us for the Moth Radio Hour on the WBUR app. And keep in mind that WBUR occasionally offers you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. A pledge is appreciated, but it's not required to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and associated sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to WBUR.org. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Home for Little Wanderers, creating better, brighter futures for kids because no child should go through life alone. Thehome.org and Landry and Arkari Rugs and Carpeting with a Black Friday event now through the 27th for all handwoven rugs. Only online at LandryandArkari.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. A second round of hostages are free, including 13 Israelis and four people from Thailand. Israel will release another 39 Palestinian prisoners from occupied West Bank prisons, according to a four-day ceasefire agreement. The hostages are among the more than 240 people seized in Hamas's attack on Israel last month. X, the social media site formerly known as Twitter, could lose $75 million in ad revenue by the end of the year as major companies pause or end ads on the site over anti-Semitic content. And after a summer that saw some of the highest ocean temperatures ever recorded, marine scientists in Florida have started to return endangered corals to underwater nurseries. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru. The Subaru Share the Love event runs through January 2nd. By year's end, Subaru and its retailers will have donated over $285 million to charity. Subaru.com share. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. Thanksgiving leftovers. Many of you probably have your entire fridges stuffed with them right now. But there's another kind of leftover we want to think about this post-Thanksgiving weekend, all the raw materials that you stocked up on to make the big spread. Those half-full boxes of stuffing, those cans of cranberry sauce you thought you would use but you didn't. Gravy mixes. You get what we're talking about. So if you ended up not using the whole box or can, what can you do with the leftover ingredients? Bon Appetit editor Rachel Gerjar published some tips just for that in this magazine's November issue. We've invited her on to share some of these tricks for using up all of those leftovers. Hey, Rachel. Hello. All right. So everybody's probably in a similar position right now, right? You've got the extra stuff sitting around. You've got the boxes that you thought you need, but you wouldn't. Big picture, how should you be thinking about these other than, oh, man, I bought too much? Right. You know, I run into this problem every year. And when I don't know what to do with (laughs) what I have left over, I... I'm I'm sick of Thanksgiving food, so I want to do something different. <laughs> right, right. I usually make it till like Saturday morning before I feel right. sick of Thanksgiving. Yeah, how food. many leftover sandwiches can you eat, right? Yeah. <laughs> 
I think you need to think about how you can fit these in your daily weeknight dinners. And that's how I came up with these recipes. So, you know, we all have that one straggler can of pumpkin puree. Mm-hmm. You don't know what to do with it. Yes, you've made pumpkin pie and it has a great application in sweet things, but I think it is an excellent base for a pasta sauce. (laughs) I mean, you wrote, uh, here's a controversial opinion. To me, pumpkin puree works better in savory applications than in sweet ones. That's that's a bold claim. Yes, and I am also one of those people who does not like pumpkin pie. I'll grant you that more. It depends year to year how I feel about (laughs) pumpkin pie. But tell me about the pasta approach. Because it's already pureed, half of your work is done. You know, pumpkin puree has a slight sweetness to it, but it definitely has savory notes as well. And I think the idea is to just punch it up using some aromatics. And you don't need anything fancy for this. You know, your go-to like garlic, onion, some good olive oil, and a little bit of red pepper flakes to add just that heat, which kind of cuts through all the sweetness and uh, makes this like really beautiful luscious sauce just throw in your pasta there and it will kind of envelop whatever pasta you use just beautifully and you have dinner ready in about 35 minutes i want to talk about stuffing next because i mean you've got the stovetop box kind you also have you know people who who do the whole thing themselves all of the the stale bread cubes uh stuffing is always the most central part of my family's thanksgiving and every year without fail when i'm making the stuffing I buy too much bread and I just have the stale bread sitting around or, you know, for people who use the box approach, you've got the extra boxes. What can you do with stuffing? Because I feel like stuffing is maybe the most like, what do you do with this outside of Thanksgiving item out there? Okay, so all you need to do to your box stuffing mix is add a little salt, some butter, and it makes for an excellent crust, whether you use it on fish like I have in my recipe, or you could make chicken fingers with it. It's crispy, it's buttery, and it gets extremely golden brown. All right. One other thing to ask about, and that is cranberry sauce, particularly canned cranberry sauce. How did you think about that? What are some of the things you came up with? So cranberry sauce, generally you're associating it with winter and coziness. It's the perfect thing to add a little bit of tang. But, you know, I come from India, we pickle a lot of things. We use so many chutneys and cranberry is the perfect vehicle to do that. It is tangy, it's sweet. And when you add some warm winter spices, it really becomes the most versatile condiment you can use across so many things. So think in your smoothies, think on your granola, think on a sandwich with peanut butter. Rachel, I know you said it at this point, everybody's probably sick of Thanksgiving leftovers, but thinking ahead to next year, can I also ask what your favorite go-to Thanksgiving leftover is still in the vein of like Thanksgiving meal type mode? My favorite leftover Thanksgiving meal is a big Thanksgiving sandwich that is almost too big to eat, but it has a layer of mashed potatoes, gravy, turkey, cranberry sauce, um, Brussels sprouts, and stuffing. So that's one other idea for anybody out there who's not quite sick of it just yet. That's Rachel Gurjar, food editor at Bon Appetit. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. Yeah, I'll be a man in black. I hear the train coming. It's 
Johnny Cash, in one way or another, dominated the American music scene for more than half a century, ever since he recorded his first song for Sun Records, Hey Porter. Hey Porter, hey Porter, would you tell me the time? Cash is most often identified as a country star, but much of his music transcended genres. He's one of just a few artists who have been inducted into both the Country Music Hall of Fame and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's been 20 years since The Man in Black died. Johnny Cash's voice and his songs continue to endure decades later, and 125 of the songs that Cash wrote are included in a new book put together by his son, John Carter Cash, along with Cash family historian Mark Stilper. They both joined me now to talk about the book. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you for having us. And Mark, I want to start with you because you wrote in the introduction of Johnny Cash's many legacies, it is the songwriting that is most enduring. Why do you think that is? I think uh, when you remove the music and you remove the arrangements and you remove the powerful singular voice and you look at the words, he conveyed such power just through his words. He was an entertainer. And so he, he spoke to us through those mechanisms. But when you take that away and you just listen to his words, you see the power. They are memorable. Yeah. They are forever. And they are his words that speak to us even today, 20 years after he's been gone. John Carter, I mean, when people think of Johnny Cash, they think of the voice. Uh, I think of the the kind of the, the rhythmic pace of the song. So many of them have that same mm-hmm. forward propulsion. But the lyrics are so memorable, too. And I'm wondering, how important was the songwriting to him when he thought about what was important as a performer, as an artist? How did the songwriting itself rank up there with everything else? Well, I mean, it's early in Dad's life, songwriting, not all of his songs, but a lot of them were autobiographical. So it was a way for him to tell where he'd been, what he'd seen, and his own life experience. With Five Feet High and Rising, it's about a flood that occurred when he was a boy. How high's the water, Mama? Five feet high and rising. How high's the water, Papa? She said it's five feet high and rising. Well, the rails are washed out in north of town. We got a head for higher ground. It related the history of America. And he would write songs out of inspiration, of love. You know, it's like a walk the line. As sure as night is dark and day is light, I keep you on my mind both day and night. It was a song that was needed in his life. He was on the road traveling all of a sudden, going from city to city, town to town. And Ian was a long ways away from his wife at home, Vivian. And so he wrote, I Walk the Line, as a direct communication to his wife. It was the truth of his life. And so it, it was a way of self-expression. It was a way of telling his own tale. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and then, yeah, I mean, there were songs like Big River, you know, where he put himself in the fantasy of the, of the guy that's chasing the girl all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. Then I heard my dream went back downstream, cavorting men down and and I followed you, Big River, when you called. You know, then there's 40 Shades of Green that connects, you know, with the Irish people still today. And you cannot tell someone in Ireland that that it's not an old standard that was written by someone Irish. I close my eyes and picture the emerald of the sea. 
From the fishing boats that dingle to the shores of Dunedee. Dad connected with people. He, he also connected through those words in ways that could tell the story of those people's lives and, of course, initially his own. I'm so glad you said that because there's been so many Johnny Cash songs over the years, and I think particularly woven into those those later American recordings. Well, I hear it and I think, oh, that's probably covering an old standard. You know, that song sounds like it's been around forever. And then you look it up. Nope. It's a song that he wrote himself, but he could still tap into yeah. those same themes that so many songs that have been around America forever tap uh, into. Magical, mystical, like the man comes around, or redemption, you know, some of the gospel things that he that he wrote. Yeah. It hits us as something that is an American standard, I think, because it is an American standard. He is a voice uh, that's capable of relating the history of the 20th century, America, um, to the public and, uh, and to the world. It's one of the last songs he wrote, and I wanted to talk about it, but since you mentioned it right now, let's talk about it right now. Can can both of you kind of tell me the backstory of, of The Man Comes Around? It's one of the last songs that he wrote. I will say I think it's my favorite of his songs. Um, what what were the circumstances of, of putting that song down to paper? Well, it's my favorite of, of his songs because I was there when he wrote it. He'd come to me and he'd ask me questions. Um, Dad had a very cool view of Christianity. What do you mean by cool? I don't know. But it, whether you're Christian or not, you can listen to The Man Comes Around and think it'd go good in a zombie movie and that it kicks ass, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the hairs on your arm will stand up at the terror in each sip and in each sup. It's intense and it's powerful and it's profound, you know, it's touching and you don't have to be a Christian to, to love the music. It was a song of faith to him, but it was not written originally as intention of it being a Christian song, but my dad made it such for his own recording. You know, the genesis of it and Mark could, could tell the same story too, but my dad had a dream that the Queen of England came to him and said, Johnny Cash, you're like a thorn tree in a whirlwind. The whirlwind is in the thorn tree. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And so that was the original inspiration for The Man Comes Around, and it went from there. Mark, those biblical undertones are, are a theme throughout Johnny Cash's entire life and his entire songbook. I mean, the, the book starts out with, with the song... Belshazzar, which has such an interesting backstory of, of Cash deciding this is the song that I'm going to audition for Sam Phillips, head of Sun Records, discoverer of Elvis, creator of rock and roll in some sense. I'm going to come in and sing this, this, this deep-cut Old Testament story song. For he was weighed in the balance and found wanting. His kingdom was divided, couldn't stand. Here he is, a 22-year-old and he is at the, the cusp, finally got in the door, finally got into the rock and roll, Hall of Fame, storied Sun Records, and he tells Mr. Phillips that he's gonna sing a song about a, a dead Old Testament king. And as sincere as anybody could be, he didn't think that that would be an anomaly. He didn't think that that was something that nobody would understand. It was su such part of him and his fabric and his life and his upbringing that it was just as natural as can be. It's interesting because the way you both wrote about it, Phillips thinks, 
what are you doing? This is wildly the wrong move, but also I'm impressed that you're coming here so confident, so authentic to yourself. Yes, he, Sam was taken from the very beginning. He said that there was something in the man's voice and in the man's sincerity in his heart. And he was later quoted as saying that of all the people that came through Sun Records, all the people that he recorded on that soundboard, the man with the most authenticity was Johnny Cash. Now, Mark, John Carter told us his favorite song was The Man Comes Around. I'm wondering what your favorite song in this book is and why. Well, it's very, very interesting that my favorite song was a song that he never recorded. And it's the very last song in the book. It's called I Turn Around Twice. And he was saying to June, he never did think that that they would grow old so gracefully. And one day she became his world. And he's giving us every human emotion that we hope to have, we're afraid to have, we deserve to have. And then when we have them, you know, it, it fulfills us. And, and that's what Johnny Cash did. He, he helped us fulfill ourselves. John Carter Cash, you talked about your favorite song. But on that note, uh, talking about deeply personal songs, what song in this book do you think was the most personal to your dad? I mean, it would have to be something like redemption. It would have to be something, you know, that that he exposed himself in by showing his faith. From the hands it came down, from the side it came down, from the feet it came down and ran to the ground. Songs of Christian faith were everything to him because it was what he believed. And just as he walked into Sun Records and sang Belshazzar, at the end of his life, it was most important to him that he have a gospel record released, even though he was having all these hits with Rick Rubin. And so the album came out posthumously. It's called My Mother's Hymn Book. And so what's the most important song that he wrote? It was, I don't know, but it was the songs of faith. And it had to have been. That was his lifeblood. Through the fire and the flood Clung to the tree and were redeemed by the blood That's John Carter Cash along with Mark Stilper talking about their new book, Johnny Cash, The Life in Lyrics. Thanks so much to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. The tree grew a vine on whose fruit I could dine 